Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Perfect time, Penny. We are going to continue. We're going to continue where we left off from uh, last week. These are the same sheets, and we're continuing the same theme within um, Rav Pincus. Rav David, David Pincus and his Sefer on uh, Pesach. And last week we spoke about. I have to tell you, actually, that our conversation last week helped uh, shape and mold my thinking for the Shabbos of Godel, Joshua. So some of that conversation may seem familiar to you. But, um, but we spoke about the idea, Rapinka spoke about the idea, that in the month of Elul, and as we prepare for the high holidays, we are looking to repair and transform and improve our external behaviors and actions. So we try to stop talking Lashon Hara, and daven with more Kavana, and make a bracha before and after we eat, and be more honest and careful in our business dealings. Elul is a time where we examine how we're behaving, and how we can improve it. Nisan, which is the corollary, or Nisan, which is the other half of the year, six months later, is the time in which we're not examining our external appearance, behavior, lifestyle, conduct, but we are examining with an effort to improve our internal, who we are as a Jew, how we think, how we feel, how we approach the world, our perspective, our judgment, um, our opinions. Are they shaped by Torah? Are they shaped by being a member of this Jewish people? Or are they shaped by the world around us? And that's the avoda. that's the effort. Rafika said last week that you survive Purim. Purim was, the, um, Purim was the decree to exterminate the Jewish people. And you, we survived that decree. Then we ask ourselves, now that we survived a life-threatening situation, clearly we have more to do. Clearly our time has not yet come. Clearly we have more to achieve. What do we want to do with our new lease on life? Right? That just like the individual who undergoes a serious operation, recovers from a serious illness, survives a horrible crash, that person who never should have made it says to themselves, wow, I never should have made it. Clearly I have more to achieve. What do I do with my new lease on life? Who do I want to be? What do I want to accomplish? That's what Nisan and Pesach are for us. That we made it through Purim. Pesach is our asking ourselves, who are we? What do we want to achieve? So we are, I believe... On uh, page three, yeah, page three. Yisoda Yisodos Leda Sheyesh Sham Matzoi. Every time, every holiday in Judaism has a theme, has an energy that we're trying to tap into. That these historical events occurred thousands of years ago, but we are not seeking to simply commemorate events of years gone by. We spoke about this Hanukkah time, I think. We are trying, the historical events revealed to us what was special about that time so that we too can tap into the energy that's present in that time. So the 15th of Nisan, we don't observe Pesach, even though I know we say, we, you know, we, we commemorate or we talk about the Exodus, what happened. But really we're only talking about those ideas because we too want to experience liberty and freedom. We too want to experience redemption. How do we identify with redemption, freedom, and liberty? Through the Pesach story. So the 15th of Nisan is a day that is imbued with possibility, with potential. It is a day that is filled and characterized by the energy of freedom, liberty, and redemption. How did we know that that happened on that day? Because Pesach happened on that day. It's not that Pesach happened on the 15th, so we observe Pesach on the 15th. It's that the 15th is a time of freedom and liberty, which allowed for Pesach and which will allow for us to achieve our own freedom and liberty from that which enslaves us as well. It's a very different paradigm. The Jewish notion of time is very different. 
You don't observe July 4th because July 4th inherently has a notion of independence and I want to be independent on July 4th so I make a barbecue and I watch a baseball game and I go to a sale because somehow I can exert my independence that is inherent. No, July 4th is purely commemorative. It commemorates uh, independence and therefore I observe a commemoration ceremony. Judaism, we're not looking to commemorate. It's Bayamimahim and Bazmanazeh. That day is inherent with that value, which allowed for the event in history to occur, and allows me to re-experience it each and every year. And so understanding the essence, the theme, the energy of a holiday, is not just so that, oh, while I'm observing what happened thousands of years ago, I, I should know better what it was. No, it's that what happened thousands of years ago was all done just so I would know the potential in that day, the richness of that day, so I too can tap into it. It's a fundamentally different way of understanding the Jewish notion of time, and it's a critical way of understanding Jewish holidays. If you don't understand this, you're not understanding Jewish holidays. Which again explains, and we spoke about this last week, why Pesach is manipulated. It's Chodesh Aviv. It's the holiday of springtime. It's not just that Pesach happened in spring, so the most authentic way to commemorate it is to do it in spring. That's not why. It's that spring allowed Pesach to happen. And spring brings with it, for us too, the platform, really the trampoline, to propel us too to the notion of what spring represents. Even though there's, I think, record low temperatures coming to the northeast today. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Moskowitz showed me a picture of his mother's home covered in snow yesterday. Mm-hmm. But springtime, springtime is that the snow melts, and you see the blossoming flowers, and the smell of spring is in the air, and renewal, and rebuilding, and refreshing, and new opportunity... So it's not Pesach happened in the spring, it's that spring enabled Pesach to happen, and spring enables our own redemption as well. So page three. At times, when we're struggling to understand a difficult uh, concept, and the, the matter is not easily attained. The answer, the solution, is to start from the beginning. The Mishnah Kasav Kach Vakach, the Gemara Kach Vakach, so you're trying to understand something, you go back to the roots. Where's the Pasuk? Where's the Mishnah? Where's the Gemara? How did the Halacha evolve? by following that process, And then you can arrive at the more complicated, sophisticated analysis, and things become clear by going back to the beginning. Right? Let's start from the top. So we too, to understand what Pesach's about, Let's go back to the beginning. You do a Lashon HaRambam B'Psichas Halachas Hilchas Yisori Torah. The Rambam, when he begins the area, his category called Hilchas Yisori Torah. Yisod, this is a quote from the Rambam. Yisod HaYisodos, the foundation of foundations. Va'amad HaChachmos, and the pillar of wisdom. Leida is to know, Sheyesh Sham Matzoi Rishon, that there is a first cause. Vahumamtsi Kol And the first cause is responsible for all that came after. And all that exists, this table, this mug, you and me, this room, this house, this world, all that exists is only at the will of that first cause. The Ramam is invoking a classic argument for evidence for God's existence. It's not his own. It could even precede him. The Rambam was not shy often to quote from Aristotle. But this is, while very simple, and certainly even sounds oversimplified, it is a very compelling piece of evidence for God's existence. 
we had a conversation with our kids at the Shabbos table a few weeks ago. Our kids say, you know, I do all. I'm not, how do you know I shouldn't exist? How do you know every one of our kids when they hit a certain age? You could see cognitively they're thinking in a certain way. How do you know? You can't see Hashem. What are we really talking to him? How do we know he exists? And then they go through the stage of saying, and how do we know we're right? Maybe the Christians are right. Maybe the Muslims are right. Each, each one thinks they're right. So we went through this conversation. I said, you know, where did you come from, Mami and Abba? Where did Mami and Abba come from? Sab and Safta and Babi and Zaidi. Where did Sab and Safta and Babi and Zaidi come from? They came from their parents. Okay, let's keep going. Where did they come from? Where did they come from? When we get back to the very beginning, where did they come from? That's when your head starts to explode. You get all dizzy and you say, you know what, I'm better off not thinking about this. But where did that first, where did the first come from? And the answer is, that's where Hashem is. What does that mean? We don't know. The Rambam writes elsewhere that we can't identify with Hashem because we're not Him. He's infinite and we're finite. He's omnipotent and we're limited. So by definition, we can't connect or identify with Hashem. We only speak, the Rabbi writes, we only speak about Hashem in the negative. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He doesn't have human characteristics. He's not this. He's not that. He doesn't have emotion. We can only talk about what He's not. He's not what we are. He's categorically different. What is He? I can't describe it. It's like trying to describe to you what coffee tastes like if you never tasted coffee. Trying to describe to you what chocolate tastes like if you never had chocolate. While it's not spicy, it's not this, it's not that, it's very hard. So we can't say what Hashem is, but what we know He is, is the first cause. We know that if you trace everything back, <coughs> it all gets traced back, whether to the Big Bang scientifically, you know, who's the cause or source of the Big Bang, or if you don't believe in the Big Bang, but the origin of the universe the origin of all that exists is Hashem. Notice the Rambam's word. First of all, he calls it the pillar of pillars and the uh, sorry, the foundation of foundations and the pillar of all wisdom is Leida. What does he not say? Laha Amin. He does not say that the pillar of all wisdom is to believe. You gotta be a believer. Take the leap of faith. Join me, friends. Believe. He does not say Laha Amin. He does not say the obligation. The pillar of wisdom is to believe. He says it's leida. What does the word leida mean? To know. The Rambam feels, and in fact Judaism asserts, that we can know God exists. Not believe, not have faith, but you can know. You have been shown ladas to know. Know today and place it on your heart that there is a God. It's not, I want to get through this section, so we're not going to do it today. But what I think Judaism is saying is that there is the same compelling pieces of evidence to support God's existence as there is anything else in your life. We talked about this too in the past. Right? How do you know the coffee you're drinking from Dunkin' Donuts this morning is not filled with poison, carcinogens, contaminations? Now all of a sudden... Yeah. <laughs> right? how, how do you know? How do you know? Do you have proof? No, you don't have proof. What do you have? You have evidence. The Dunkin' Donuts wouldn't risk its entire franchise, its store, and the whole thing would be shut down. People, there's, you know, there's health codes. You have a lot of evidence, a lot of reasons to believe that you could buy a box of Joe from Dunkin' Donuts and drink it without dying. Unless you're like a neurotic person who, you know, you have a lot of reason to believe. A healthy person who lives off of an abundance of evidence would drink a cup of coffee from Dunkin' Donuts and not fear they're going to die. Do they have proof? No. And nothing you do you have proof for you go to CVS and you pick up your prescription medicine. You know you're going to take that medicine and you're not going to drop dead. How do you know it's not laced with cyanide? Mm. How do you know? How do you know the pharmacist is not some 
total psycho and he's lacing the medicine with cyanide and you're going to drop dead. <coughs> so it's better to live with the gout or better to live with the pain or better to live with the whatever you're taking the medicine for better than dropping dead of cyanide. How, how are you taking the medicine? The answer again is you have an abundance of evidence. And that same unit of evidence for every choice we make in life exists to choose to know that God exists. That same amount of evidence, that same critical mass of evidence that rules every choice we make from believing when you looked in your rear view mirror you could change lanes and there wasn't an optical illusion and there isn't a hidden spot and you're not going to die to taking the medicine, to drinking the coffee, to every choice you make, the same amount of evidence exists to know that there is Hashem. That's Judaism's assertion. Now you have to examine all of that evidence. If you're examining it objectively, by the way, and that's the key, I might add. That is the key. Too many people in life are not examining the evidence objectively. We come in and we have preconceived notions. I didn't like my third grade Rebbe and therefore I hate Judaism. My apparent, an authority figure, somebody in my life who represented religion or God failed me and therefore I have no respect for authority and I will never submit to a higher authority or I did business once with an observant Jew who messed me over and wasn't honest. I was once almost knocked over at a buffet by a from-looking person <laughs> who shuckled in shul but almost... I went to a High Life Fine dinner the other night. You think a guy on a scooter, like a little Rachmanus, <laughs> twice at the sushi bar, I was literally almost knocked off my, off my scooter. Uh, you know, listen, priorities people have. So I, trust me, I was tempted to give up religion. But, I, but, I'm, but I'm sticking with it nonetheless. So, but not the food. <laughs> but I'm sticking with it nonetheless. So I didn't even notice. They just, that wasabi was so important. Anyway, so... The same amount of evidence exists, but you have to look at it objectively. If you come in with hurt, with anger, with resentment, with preconceived notions, if you already came in with your answer and your conclusion, then no evidence in the world, no proof in the world will be enough for you. But if you come in objectively and just ask yourself the question, to the point that, I don't think it was Einstein, I forgot who said it, that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. It takes more faith, once you examine the evidence, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. It's a lot harder for the atheist to work on continuing to justify that it's all random and it's all chance and it's all Big Bang, it's all science and it's all... It's hard. It takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a believer. So this is the Rambam's core. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be living in this universe? Is to know that there is a first cause to all and that everything that exists, exists only at His will. Rambam, we're continuing, third paragraph. If you want to understand every wisdom... At the core and at the source of all wisdom, the Rambam was a person who was not shy to understand wisdom. The Rambam was a physician who was familiar with the sciences. And at the source of all wisdom is Borei Olam. says, normally when you get into a debate, about uh, God's existence. So the argument's always about do you believe in Torah with Derech Eretz or about um, the conscription of uh, yeshiva students to the army. Rav, Rav uh, Pincus is an American-born rabbi who was a Rav in Ofakim. I told you last week, tragically killed in a car accident. Rabim mivikuchim elu hayu nimnaim ilu lo hayu namaschilim Many of these arguments could have been avoided if you didn't pick up in the middle of the issue but you started from the source. Yesh bore umanhig le'olam. There is a creator who is dominion over the world. And what does he want? Not what does the New York Times op-ed say. 
Not what do the blogs or what do the polls or what do the candidates or what does uh, whatever say. Do you believe that there's a creator of the universe? Do you believe he has expectations of us? Do you believe he has designs for his world? Do you believe there's a reason that he created us, you in particular? Do you believe that you can try to identify what he wants from you? That, you have to start the conversation. Now, I, I will, I don't know if Rapinkis is going to admit, but I will concede that that doesn't mean that there's no longer room for diversity and arguments and shivim panim la Torah. There are 70 faces to Torah. And there are many shades within Torah Judaism that are equally valid, legitimate, beautiful, consistent with Torah, you know, ranging from a lot of different worlds and to see the beauty in each of them. So I don't mean to suggest that if you start with the question, is there a God? Did he create the world? Does he have a design and plan? Does he have expectations? Did he communicate what he wants from us? Then all of a sudden we'll have uniformity. Everybody will arrive at the exact same answer and we've avoided all the conversations and debates. There'll still be lots of debates and still be lots of conversations. But the tone and tenor of them will be different if we all are under that one rubric. And then we get to these fundamental questions. Who is that creator? How is he great? How deep is he? Do you believe that the Torah is from him? Do you believe it's a living, vibrant Torah that continues to dictate and legislate our lives? Was it given just for 80 years? Was it given just for the 40 years in the desert? Or is this something which is eternal? Is it timeless? The kasher as oskim biyesodos hadvarim, and when you get to the root of the matter, kol osam bikuchem katnoniim nimugim me'aleim. Many of the small and petty debates and arguments take on a different context. If they're within, are, in other words, are you debating what you believe, or are you debating what you think Hashem wants from the universe? How many debates do you think people are saying, "This is what I think Hashem wants from us. I think Hashem would be disappointed with that. This is what I think Hashem desires." No, they're usually more all about, you know, ego, personal, this is my perspective, this is what would fulfill my needs, this is how I see the world. So the context in which to have our discussions, the context in which to live that diversity is to start from the beginning. Is there a God? What does he look like? Is he the same as us or is he different? Is his Torah authentic and genuine? You think it was written by man? Is it timeless? Or were its lessons only for a certain period of time are they archaic and outdated? You know, I, I feel this way when, you know, there are people, somebody I'm, I'm close with who, who's recently been walking away from religion, has walked away from religion. And, and I have not yet had the conversation that I want to desperately have, which is, are you walking away because you have struggle? So let's have a conversation. Are you struggling to know whether God really exists and whether His Torah is genuine and whether the Torah is written by man or by Hashem and how real and how binding and how important... Are you struggling to make it compatible with other aspects of your life which are challenging to make compatible? If you're in a struggle, have the struggle. But you're just walking away. And and what I'm desperate to ask this person is, this is a person who came to religion proudly and joyously and, and excitedly, is to say, was that all a joke? Was that not real? If it was real, so what happened? Let's let's talk about it. Let's continue to be in the struggle. If it wasn't real, what, what, what drug were you on then? What did you get swept up in? You know, what happens in life, I think they quote this in the name of Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, the Brisk, Rav Chaim Brisker, um, that uh, someone once came to him with a list of questions about Hashem, you know, Hashkafic questions, questions about Amuna. So Rav Chaim famously said to him, 
Are these kashas or are they terutsim? If they're kashas, I'll give you answers. If they're terutsim, there's no terutsim for terutsim. A kasha is a question, a teretz is an answer. So Chaim said to him, are your questions questions or are your questions answers? If your questions are questions, we can have a conversation. If your questions are answers, there's nothing to talk about. So we have a generation that are posing questions, they're posing answers in the form of questions. Judaism is difficult. It requires sacrifice and submission and struggle. It's not always easy. And so what do we do? We manufacture questions. We manufacture questions because then we find our way out. It's our exit strategy. We manufacture answers in the form of questions because that's our exit strategy. That doesn't mean to suggest there aren't legitimate questions. And there aren't real people struggling with real questions. I'm not making a sweepy statement. One of the top guys I was in yeshiva with in Israel for two years, and then in Yeshiva University, who we all admired. He was a masmid, and he helped me start a publication in YU that we worked on that was all about growing religiously. And he, was, he led Musar Vadim studying Ali Shor. And we all admired him like crazy. And circumstances in life, which I won't get into, um, really disappointing circumstances in life, led him, ultimately, he's not from whatsoever today. I, it literally took me years. I was devastated. Religiously devastated, personally devastated. Like somebody who was somebody you looked up to, who helped you on your own journey and your own path, who you so admired to, to leave it all. And, and in, in, there wasn't much conversation because it was clear there wasn't a desire for one. But in the limited conversation, you know, there's all these questions. Really, you know, all I believed was fake. You know, it's not so simple that God wrote the Torah, that God exists, that God. And it was so clear those were terutim natkashas. Life had thrown, a, religious life had thrown a number of serious disappointments his way. Serious disappointments. And that doesn't mean those questions aren't good questions and worthy of reflection and examination and, and, and study. But are they questions or are we posing answers in the form of questions to cop out? So that's kind of the conversation that we have with ourselves this time of year. I share all of this with you not to judge others. Everybody's in their own shoes and we don't judge anyone until we've experienced what they've experienced and we can never experience exactly what someone else has experienced, which is why Chazal say, never judge others. In other words, the Mishnah Neva says, don't judge someone until you're in their shoes. You can never be in their shoes. So that's their way of saying, never judge anyone. <laughs> so I'm not judging anyone, but what I'm saying is, this is what we should ask ourselves, examine in our own life. With whatever doubts and uncertainties we have, Nisan and getting up to Pesach, the Chag Ha'emuna, the holiday of faith and liberty and redemption and freedom is to say, where are my doubts and uncertainties? Do I have answers that I've been posing as questions? Do I need to be more honest with myself and ask myself these things? Is there a God? And if there is a God, does He have expectations of us? What does He want from us? And, and so on. This was, um, this was I, I spoke to the high school recently. Uh, they have these Jed talks on Friday mornings. You're supposed to tell your life story a little bit, something inspirational in your life. They bring in different speakers. So I told them uh, this story. When I was in 11th grade, we um, took a class trip to Boston. And on the way back from the class trip to Boston, the bus pulled over in a rest stop, and there was very poor chaperoning on that trip. I don't understand exactly why. And at the rest stop, a number of kids that got back on the bus, let me give you the short version of this, because I want to get back to Rafikas, but a number of kids who got back on the bus, got back on the bus with French fries from the Burger King and with all kinds of non-kosher food. Now, um, I went to a wonderful school, and I continue to have Hakar Satov to it for what it taught me and how I learned, but it had a very diverse student population. Um, and, um, you know, kids, there were a lot of kids who were not entirely living 
the lives of what we were learning. And uh, I was not entirely, I, I was not a rabbi then. There are people who constantly go back to Teaneck and meet people who know me from my youth who say that they were surprised. <laughs> say this all with me, that, I became, that I became a rabbi. But what a week you have to come. Uh, anyway, so, um, you know, so, so you know, what, I'm not going to get into the ways that I was picking and choosing, but they had crossed a line that, that I or we, my chevra, had not crossed. You know, Burger King, like that's, that's a serious line. So, um, I guess I wasn't shy then, as I'm not now, and I began a conversation with them, kind of like, guys, like, what are you doing? Like, we don't, we don't do that, you know? Like, what's going on? And they looked at me and they said, you're a hypocrite. You're picking and choosing. Who are you to judge how we're picking and choosing? Once you're picking and choosing, you're picking and choosing. So either you're doing it or you're not doing it. And if you're going to pick and choose, so you're picking and choosing in a way that's comfortable for you, or we're going to pick and choose in a way that's comfortable for us. And when I say, like, a conversation, it wasn't the one guy next to me with his french fries. It was the whole back of the bus against me. We were having this conversation, like a whole chevra, a whole whatever. And that conversation, if I could pinpoint one moment in my life that changed the trajectory of my life, it was that moment. I have amazing parents, and they've raised me in an amazing way, and they've taught me everything, and they inspired me. But that conversation changed. Why? Because I went back, and I took what they said seriously. And I said, you know, they're right. Is this real or is it not real? Is there Hashem? Does He have expectations? Is the Torah binding? Are there consequences for not observing it? I started to read. My, you remember? You gave me a lot of different books to read. I read the questions people ask about Judaism. Who wrote that? Prager. I read why bad things happen to good people. I read, I read all these books. And there wasn't nearly the literature there is today. Not that I'm a thousand years old. But there wasn't nearly the great literature there is today. I read all of these books. I ended up writing my YU essay about this story, I remember. But, but that question they posed to me changed my life. And that changed the trajectory of my life. And there's more to the story about my senior year in high school and after high school. And it's actually very fascinating what happened socially to me in my senior year of high school and afterwards. But many of these same kids who were from the same background as me but were picking and choosing the goalposts of where they were picking and choosing were much broader than mine. And to me, it crossed lines I wouldn't. So these same people ended up, after we spent our year in Israel, towards the end of that first year in Israel, got together and basically said, we gave you a hard time, but like where now, where you, whatever. Anyway, it was very interesting. Why am I sharing that story with you? Because that's what Nisan is. Pesach is looking in the mirror and asking ourselves that question. Is it real or is it not real? Are you taking it seriously or not? Are you going to be genuine and real? Is it real or is it not real? Do you believe it? Do you not? Is there Hashem? What's your relationship like with Him? Are you grateful to Him? Do you ask from Him? Are you humble before Him? Do you depend on Him? Do you feel His hand on your shoulder? Is He involved in your life? Is He real or not? Do you have a relationship with Him? Yes or no? Not externally. Like There are people who have been going to shul for 40 years, three times a day. They have yet to talk to Hashem in their life. People have been going to shul for 80 years. Three times a day, saying every word in that sitter, they have yet to have a rendezvous with the Almighty. They have yet to feel a connection and intimacy with Him. They have yet to have a conversation where they feel His presence. Is He real? Is He not real? Are His expectations of us real or not? As I'm saying all this, I'm realizing it would be good for Shabbos to double. So if you hear it again, if you hear it again, if you hear it again, you'll forgive me. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. What are we up to? Top? Yes. Top of page four. Hasugya miyuchedesh achag pesach so, if it's about going back to the beginning of the sugya, the key sugya for the holiday of Pesach is hidden, is found in this pasuk. Why did God take us out with all the pomp and circumstance? Why did God take us out 
in the manner that he did, so that we would know that he is God in the midst of all the land. Zeu inyan pesach to start from the beginning. And the beginning is to know that there is a God in this universe. In the language of our early authorities, the Seder night can be divided into two parts. Karpas is about our um, being small, and matzah is being great. Mochem peruso seichel v'hasaga. Karpas is about our limited capacity to understand, and matzah is about our great capacity. Kesha'omem Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, ha'chaluka hikach. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem, mochem dekatnas. Listen, Hashem is our God, Hashem. Echad mochem degadlas. Now what is it? That I can understand. I don't need a big brain. I don't need a great intellect to understand. There is one. There is a God, but Echad, the notion of the unity of God's existence, that everything comes from Him, that's greatness. So let me explain. Says Rapinkas, Hashem is Baruch Asa Ba'olam Ohar Beinisim Veniflos. God in His world performed many miracles. Ulam Hanesa Gadol Mikulam Hu. But the greatest miracle, Ha'efsharus Lo Lahakir Ba'uvda Hamuchshish Sheyeshne Boru Ba'olam. You know the biggest miracle that God created is the capacity to deny that He exists. The biggest miracle God did is to make human beings who could live in His world who could not believe that He exists. Isn't that an interesting spin? Mm-hmm. It's like saying it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does a believer. The biggest miracle <coughs> God did is to create a world where humans could deny that He exists. If you look at a microphone, you know that it didn't come to be on its own. You also know that it wasn't done by five-year-olds in the garage that they invented electricity. They invented the microphone. They invented the touchscreen. You look at something sophisticated and you know it took somebody sophisticated in order to create it. That's clear to anybody. That's clear to anybody. That's like the ABCs of life. There's not a human being alive who I could convince. I don't care how unintelligent, how shallow... I don't care how gullible. There's not a human being alive that I could convince that what we're studying right now, these words on this paper, came about because somebody knocked over a bottle of ink and lo and behold, here we go. Because a monkey sat at a typewriter and lo and behold, here we go. There's not a human being who's gullible enough to believe that in all of history and for all of time. There's not a human being gullible enough to believe that you know, there was a pile of material delivered from Home Depot, and then there was a tornado, and it resulted. Look at that home. Look how it came to be. There's not a human being who would look at a piece of art. There's a lot of pieces of art that you believe. <laughs> somebody, and I don't get why they're art or worth any money whatsoever, but that's a, I'm, because I'm unsophisticated, so I don't understand it. But a piece of art, which is clear to me, depicts something that you can see. So nobody's going to tell you that somebody knocked over or threw buckets of paint against the wall, and lo and behold, that's what happened. That's what they do. That's exactly how some... I know. Correct. And I think if a monkey could do it, or a three-year-old, it shouldn't be worth a million dollars. But that's my my humble opinion. But anyway, so whether it's art or architecture, or whether it's... um, whether it's uh, authorship or whether it's whatever it is, a beautiful piece of silver which has been crafted. It is a basic, 101, 
There's not a human being alive or who has ever lived who would be gullible enough to say it came to be by chance. It came to be through a tornado or wind or by accident or knocking something over. We know that if something is sophisticated, it was crafted by someone sophisticated. And then you come to the world. <laughs> Right? If you look at something electric, you know somebody put the electricity there. You look at a building, somebody built it. So how come? Why do we not have that same level of clarity? Who put the trees to? There's beautiful pink flowers in my backyard. Where'd they come from? Where'd they come from? All of a sudden it comes to the complexity of the human body, of the animal kingdom, of the plant world, of the, and all of a sudden of the weather. Everything has to be just right. You know, if it was off a tiny bit, the ecological system and how it works, if it was off a, a bit, we couldn't exist. Everything has to be just right. But when it comes to that, we're all gullible. The whole world's all of a sudden gullible. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Random, chance, big bang, accident. All of a sudden, the whole universe is gullible. You know, going through this uh, torn Achilles, I have such an appreciation of the human body. How is it that your foot, which is so small, can hold up and balance your whole body, which weighs so much more and is so big? The tendons and the ligaments and the... Everything has to be just right. And a micro-tear... Mine wasn't a micro-tear. But if you have a micro-tear, everything's off. So walking, which we take for granted, walking, running, doing, all of a sudden, you can't even put on your pants with dignity, all of a sudden, because you have a micro-tear and a little thing, and it's an accident. Who developed the human body? You put food in, and the body knows how to take away what it needs and eliminate what it doesn't need, and you've got a whole factory going on inside you. Mm-hmm. When it's all working, and it's working right, there's an entire plant, an entire factory operating that your heart is operating around the clock 24-7. It doesn't get a break. It doesn't get a breather. It's pumping just right. And if one of the valves closes, it it's just the complexity and the sophistication. But no, that, that all of a sudden we're gullible. All of a sudden that's an accident. I don't know if there's a creator. I don't know if anyone made that. That maybe just came about by chance. All of a sudden, we all become so gullible. So the painting had to have a painter. The building had to have an architect and a builder. And the book had to have an author and a publisher. But the world, all of a sudden, we're gullible. Not so sure. That's the biggest miracle of all. That God can make us who think one way in terms of everything else. That when it comes to God, we become gullible. That's a miracle. That we could live in a world of such clarity that He exists. Such undeniability that He exists. And still deny that's the biggest miracle of all. articulated. When put it that Hashem lives in the darkness, cloaked in darkness, that He was able to create a world where we should have absolute clarity that He exists, and nevertheless He's cloaked in darkness. And when Mashiach will come, that wall, that darkness, that cloud will lift. And we will see clearly, absolutely clearly, undeniably. That's what we miss with the Beis Hamikdash. The whole world was clouded, cloaked in darkness, 
There was one place that you had light, you had a breakthrough window, you got to see with clarity, and that was the holy Beis HaMikdash, the temple in Yerushalayim. Mishnah Pirkei says, 10 miracles happened every day in the Beis HaMikdash. And lists all the miracles. So any moment that you had doubt or uncertainty, or you felt distant, or with wonder, you made your way to Yerushalayim, you went not to the Kotel, but to the Beis HaMikdash, and you saw with clarity. There was darkness everywhere else, and there was that one ray of light that came in through there. And that's what we miss. That's the tragedy of the loss. That's what we mourn. That Beis HaMikdash. We mourn the capacity to recalibrate our clarity, to come back to our renew our sense of certainty that Hashem exists. Right? It's like if your glasses get dirty and you finally clean them, you go, oh, I could see again. I didn't realize. You know, I used to wear glasses. So often your glasses get so dirty and days, weeks go by without cleaning them, you don't even realize how poorly you're seeing. You don't even realize how much more clearly you could see until you clean them and you say, ah, oh, that's what everything looks like. Wow, I, didn't, I was looking through all the schmutz and all this dirt and all this everything. So our glasses are covered in schmutz in this world. When Mashiach comes, our glasses will get a good cleaning. The base of Mikdash, you got an instant rinse on your glasses when you walk through. The Hirazu Nikra, let's just do a drop more. This clarity is called Mochem de Katnas. This is what you call a Muna Pshita. There is a very simple level of faith that even a child should be capable of knowing. And that is, before the darkness covers your glasses, you can see with clarity. Of course there is a Hashem. If I have parents, and my parents have parents, and they have parents, of course there's original parents, and that's Hashem. Of course. What do you mean? This is the goal, the essence of every Jew. To get to a level of Amun Apshuta. Like, what am I getting into all these philosophical debates and discussions and arguments? It's obvious. Let's go back to the beginning. It's obvious. There's a God. It's obvious. It's obvious. We don't have to make it more complicated. It's obvious. In fact, I'll end by telling you this. Rav Hanan Wasserman asks, Hashem Yikom Damo, killed by the Nazis, a student of the Chafetz Chaim, the great Rav Hanan Wasserman. So he asks, I don't understand. A child becomes Bat Mitzvah or Bar Mitzvah. All of a sudden, they're obligated in Amuna. They have to believe that God exists. How's that possible? They're 12 to 13 years old. What do they know? What can they do? He writes, Rav Hanan, Aristotle, the great philosopher, spent his life trying to find out whether God exists. And here, the 12-year-old, the 13-year-old little kid you say, you bar mitzvah, you bar mitzvah, you have to have a muna. How could you demand of them? How could we demand of them something so many adults, much older, still struggle with? Listen to what he answers. It's brilliant. He says, you know, it's not that children are neutral and now they turn 12 or 13, we have to teach them to believe. It's that children innately and inherently believe. And we have to avoid exposing them to all the things that make you stop believing. So 12 or 13, it's not a big deal to believe because you're believing since you're one. And your parents have been talking to you about Hashem, thank Hashem, ask Hashem, do you see Hashem? Look how amazing Hashem is that this worked out. It's so clear there's Hashem. And just protect them. Protect them from exposure to all the things in the world that make a person start saying with sarcasm and cynicism, eh, who knows? Eh, not so impressed. Eh, I'm not sure he exists. So the goal is not that you have to teach them Amunah in 12 or 13, that they've had since they're one or two. The goal is to protect them from the things that remove 
or that compromise that sense of amuna. Such a brilliant answer. And that's what he's saying here too. Let's go back to being children. Let's go back to being children. So the world thinks that they're greater, they're more superior, that you're inferior if you have amuna pshuta. Let's go back to Nisan, Pesach, is the avoda is going back to amuna pshuta. There's a God. It's obvious. He took us out of Egypt. He continues to be involved in my life. I need him. I'm grateful to him. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to that which is obvious and not make it more complicated than it needs to be. So these are some of the avoda. We're getting ready. The Shabbos is Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And we begin the process. We're heading towards Pesach. But the goal is not just on Wednesday mornings with the cup of coffee. The goal is every day to be working on this. Things go on in your life that you, you know, you got to try to see through the prism of Hashem. What does Hashem want from me? I need to ask Hashem. I need to be grateful to Hashem. I need to recognize this is Hashem. To feel Hashem in every aspect of our lives. Have a great day.